Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. Why are books an essential part of the journey of life? How might books help us navigate this journey? How do books help us be human? Joining us today to discuss the first six books of 12 books everyone should read before they are 30, is regular Wittenberg Hour guest, Miss Ellie Mummy. Ellie, thank you for joining us today. I am excited to be here. As I peruse this list, the word that comes to mind is journey. At first I was thinking adventure, but I think journey is more accurate. If you were to put a word on the first half of this list, what would you say? So I thought about this a lot because I had my 12 books uh, rather than 10, a kind of bonus two, um, that I wanted to talk about for this list in general. And then typically what I do is I write the list and then I reorganize it to kind of put it in sections. And this list was probably the hardest to reorganize for me because I think all of the books tie in together. They're all, you know, they're all talking about really deep things, really heavy things, and they're all very unique, but they all are struggling with also the same problems. Um, But when I divided these two, I kind of divided it so that these first six books, in my mind, are about um, your relationship with yourself or your view of yourself, but more in a light of a conversation with yourself. So I actually had a good friend over for dinner a few weeks ago. And um, as we were chatting, we talked a little bit about kind of the post-college life when you're no longer required to read books and you're no longer in those discussions. And you, you continue to have all that passion and love for learning and especially for reading, but you all of a sudden just lose all of that discussion behind it that you had in college. And she said something that I thought was very profound and that I'd never heard someone phrase that way before. Um, And she said that graduating from college, then you have to learn to have a conversation with yourself. Instead of being able to discuss those books with all these other people in a class, you have to learn how to have that conversation with yourself. And I thought that was really brilliant. And I think that is a big part of learning is learning to be able to have intellectual discussions, even just with yourself and to analyze things critically with yourself. And I think these six books really do above many other things, focus on that idea of a conversation with yourself, a knowledge with yourself. Um, And I think in that way, actually, I would say journey fits very well because it's also sort of the hero's journey for each of these characters learning those things. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking about that idea of the conversation with oneself, with the the striving to continue to stimulate your brain, 
intellectually. Um, you know, I, I sometimes with my scholars call it cognitive calisthenics, right? Um, that to continue, you know, it's kind of like when, when you're in college, um, you, you have a, a, a workout partner, and you have, you know, you, you have that accountability. You brought, you brought up that, that word, that word accountability. And I think that there is an aspect of cognitive con- accountability that we need to engage in. And it, sometimes books can do that for us. Um, but what do you think about, especially as adults, you know, we've, we've, we've lengthened our time span, right? Our previous lists, you were supposed to read the books before you're 21. And now we've given everyone till the age of 30. Uh, so those of our listeners who are uh, older than 30, you're behind. Uh, so get caught up now. <laughs> and, and so, um, but thinking about that, um, what do you think is the value or role as young people uh, launch into adulthood um, outside of their parents' homes many times, um, but not always. Um, what what do you think about the the value or role of of actual cognitive accountability that can be provided uh, by another person or by other people? I think it's very important. Um... I would say your 20s, kind of that, not not completely your 20s. I think it's ridiculous to restrain things by age, to be very specific. But in general, people's 20s are this time where they're transitioning fully from, you know, oh, I've graduated from college. Now I'm just doing the plain adult life thing. You're still an adult while you're at college, but you're, you're not doing the, I go to work from nine to five and I do this you know, I have this routine and this family life and this home, it's, it's just slightly different. But as you're in your 20s, you're typically transitioning into that structured daily life of an adult that we see as kids growing up. And there is this danger, I think, of living that life without a second thought, without ever thinking about it. And that is very, very that's, that's kind of a surface level life. Not that it's a bad thing, but you're not kind of delving any deeper in. And it can be very helpful to have those friends and those um, family members who are able to have those kind of conversations with you where you're delving a little deeper into it and you're realizing why the things that you're doing matter. And that's kind of what we'll talk about today with these books. But I would even say, um, speaking from personal example, I am getting married in a few weeks. Um, And I have a few other friends who are getting married this year. And one of the things that's come up as we've all been, you know, together for dinners or um, just chatting about each other's plans and how that planning for the weddings go, um, something that struck me a lot is that a few of the guys have mentioned that they always found it very boring to sit in conversations and have to listen to, where did you get your ring? You know, where are you getting married? What are you, where are you going to live? All of those details, just supremely boring to them. Not interesting, didn't matter. And they've all kind of said that now that they're going through it, they are supremely interesting to them. And they want to know. They're like, I'm the one asking the question now. Where are you getting the ring? Where are you guys living? How is that? What is the plan? And it's it's like you you don't realize how quickly that will switch. 
where you'll say, I never used to care at all what, you know, what someone's heating or electricity was in their house. And now I find myself asking everyone what they do. And so I think that's why it's really important is you never know when that's going to switch. And all of a sudden those things are going to matter and having the ability to have um, other people to talk to is great because then you're able to kind of bounce those ideas off and see their similar kind of interests or um, parallel interests to something else kind of grow and shift and change as their stations in life and their situations in life shift. And so I think a big part of that is that literature not only gives you a way to talk about that mutually of, I read this book, what did you see as relatable to where you're at in life right now? And what do I see? And how can we kind of talk about what we learned from the book and what we can apply to our lives going forward? But also when you don't have anyone who's going through what you are or who's asking those questions that you are, then you have a book where you are really in conversation with the author who wrote it, even if they died 200 years ago or a thousand years ago, you're able to have that intellectual conversation so that it's not purely you, you're able to learn to just have a conversation with the words on the page, which I think is really important. Yeah. And when you were talking just then, the thing that came to mind was a common language. And uh, many of these books that we have discussed in previous lists and that we're certainly going to discuss over the next two episodes provide readers community, not only with the author, but also with fellow readers. And, you know, whereas, um, you know, sometimes people talk about the fact that, you know, a hundred years ago, or maybe even less than that, you know, the King James Bible was the common language of the people. And now um, people don't have a common language, or if they do have a common language, it's movie quotes or something like that. And so it's, it's, it's not as accessible and it's, to a certain extent, it's isolating to not have that, that common language. Um, now, we would certainly hope that the Bible would remain a common language. Um, for us Lutherans, we would hope that our, our catechism and confessions would, would provide common language for us. But in reading books, we can also experience that common language and common experience. I, I know that, and you've probably had this experience as well, that uh, I'll be in class and someone will say something and, you know, will recently Animal Farm has come up a lot, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You know, it just seems like the circumstances of life uh, just necessitate yeah. Animal Farm quotes in yeah. great frequency. <laughs> yeah. So so just thinking about, um, you know, having you know, if I was the only one who read Animal Farm and a situation arose, like the times in which we are living, when, you know, it was, it was appropriate to say, you know, all animals are equal or, or something like that. And, and no one was able to finish that line. I'd be like, oh, <laughs> like, like the moment would have been gone, you know? So, so having this, you know, common language of, of books, you know, this is part of, this is part of the, the greater community um, that, that literature provides for us. 
Yeah, I'd agree. And actually, as you put it that way, and as you're talking, I would say that's kind of how I sorted this list, where I would say these first six books are the six books I picked for readers to kind of start to build that language and learn that language themselves to have their own identity and, you know, personality in that language. And then the, the second six are about how you use that language with others and how that book, that language specifically applies to other people. Um, so that is kind of a lot of what we're going to be talking about is what is that language? What does that language look like? It will kind of be this episode versus next episode, which will be what does that language look like in community? What does literature have to say about community and how do all of those things kind of tie together? Because I do think that's really important and it, it gives you the opportunity also, which is something we, again, have hinted at but talked about a lot, to cross ages and cross um, decades. You don't, you don't have to be limited to people of your own age when you're talking the language of literature. You can talk to someone who is 50 years your elder or 10 years your younger, and it's going to be great. Um, some of the people that I speak to the most about literature are my old college professors. And they're, of course, not at all in the same time period of life as me, but we are still very good friends and very close friends because we speak the same language. And I can do the same with young people, with students and with scholars who are learning to speak that language. We have just as much in common because we can continue to speak that language even though they're just starting high school and I'm getting married. You know, we have these different places in life, but it gives you that ability to be able to speak across decades and to understand and communicate across decades, which I think is very important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, let's dive in and uh, take on the first six books on this list of 12 books everyone should read before they are 30. Our first book um, is is rather broad, uh, <laughs> The Lord of the Rings. So I chose Lord of the Rings, and I think it might be the most obvious of the books that I would put on a list of books that everyone should read before they're 30. I think they are incredibly well-beloved across generations. I don't think anyone will be shocked that it made it on this list. And I honestly don't think that many people would argue. Um, but kind of the things that I wanted to focus on with The Lord of the Rings specifically in this idea of self is the idea of um, like a definitive and objective right and wrong, a good and bad. Lord of the Rings does a phenomenal job of showing you not only people who are good and people who are bad, but qualities that are good and lifestyles that are good and lifestyles that are bad. And so you very quickly by reading the novels and discussing them and dissecting them have very specific rights and wrongs in your head. And you have this objectivity for it that I think is really important. And I think even in the quote that you read, um, the Tolkien quote that we began this episode with, we're talking about this whole idea of r good versus bad, where he's like, it's not a nasty, dirty, wet hole. It's not any of those things. It's a hobbit hole, and that's comfort. And it just really perfectly sets the tone. But we're, we're contrasting these kind of nitty, gritty, edgy things 
with comfort and simplicity and goodness and love. And that is really what I think is truly fundamental about Lord of the Rings and is something that, I mean, you know, third and fourth graders will pick up if you read the books to them. And even younger, they're going to understand that, but then will still blow you away the older you get and the more you reread it, it strikes you in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, I mean, all of these books on this list are books that you could read over and over and over. Um, but that that need for, you know, when when you're young, and we've talked about this when, when we discussed, you know, the list for boys and the list for girls, um, that, that need for the, the definitive good and evil, right? Um, Even though things become more murky and gray uh, as we get older, I think fundamentally there is still that need for black and white for for us to know and be able to fall back on the fact that there is good and evil somehow it helps us cope with the gray and the the not really knowing um you know is okay so maybe this is good but this is more good or this is bad or the and but this is more bad you know and having to navigate through that um, as adults. I mean, that's that's part of being an adult is is navigating through risks and making choices and um, and and mediating uh, the the risks as needed. But I think that's part of the draw that the Lord of the Rings has for the very reason that you pointed out is that we keep going back to it because we want a land where, we we want a reality where there is good and evil well defined because we don't get that we don't get to live in a world where good and evil is always well defined absolutely and i think the brilliant thing about the lord of the rings is that the more that i return to it and the more that i think about it and talk about it um the more I realize that he gives us that much clearer picture of good versus evil and that, but he also gives us more gray area than we like to think he does in the novel. And so you're still getting kind of the murky waters. I think Gollum is the perfect example of this. Um, You have this character who is so black, like it's not black and white at all. He's so in between was good, was bad, is good, is bad. He's just kind of all of them at the same time. And it's it's murky and it's hard to deal with. Um, one of the big debates that I see people talking about when they read Lord of the Rings for the first time is, okay, are you Frodo and Sam? Do you give Gollum a chance? Do you not? What is the right decision to make? And I think it's brilliant to have that conversation and consistently have that conversation because there's not necessarily a right answer as far as should you trust him, should you not trust him, but there is a right answer as far as what you should do. And that I think is what's truly brilliant about Lord of the Rings is that I think the strength of character in pretty much every one of the good characters 
is phenomenal. And it's very subtly, I would say subtly simply because I don't think Tolkien's trying to specifically tell you, hey, this is how you live your vocation out. But subtly, he's teaching you vocation and he's teaching you the correct way to approach your vocation. And we see this throughout all of the characters. So Frodo is a hobbit and he is kind of a hobbit in contention with what it means to be a hobbit simply because he's Bilbo's nephew. And so he has that spirit of adventure in him, which is not how most hobbits are, but he still is fully a hobbit, grew up in Hobbiton. He loves and cares for the simple things. He has been by and large fully protected from evil in any sort of deep way. Um, the evil that he knows or the wrongdoing that he knows would be, you know, stealing someone's crops or, you know, that sort of thing. Something that is very tame compared to the rest of the evil in this book. I would say arguably this is the way that you want your children to be raised. You, know, you want your children to have that kind of a sheltered, you know, protected, learning the good and beautiful in life and being saved from the truly awful right off the bat. Um, but we see Frodo upholding the ideals and the goods that he learned growing up throughout the novel. And so he, I think, rightly chooses to trust Gollum because he knows it is the right thing to do, even if Gollum does not deserve it. Um, and he makes that decision kind of out of love and compassion for Gollum. He wants to try to help and he can't help if he just writes the person off. Um, and so that I think is really, really interesting, but we see that same strength of character, that same understanding of personal vocation and personal calling in all of the characters. I think of, um, think of all the warriors, Aragorn, Boromir, Faramir, um, uh, Aomir, they are all, uh, they're all warriors and they're mighty and they're very, very good at fighting, but they are not fighting for the glory of war. They are fighting because they all have people they want to protect. And, and that, that changes the way that they are a warrior. Whereas you can see the orcs, you can see these other characters who are fighting out of glory and the love for war and goriness. And, and you see this complete contrast in the things that matter. And that I think is what's really, really important is that it helps you build this understanding of what you should do as you go from kind of understanding those goods into a world where you don't see them very often. You don't see the, the good and the beautiful very often. And so you have to realize that, well, I'm here to serve others and defend others. And I'm here to love them and try and be faithful to those values that I know and understand and believe in, even if I don't see them in front of me. I think we see that more with Frodo than we like to talk about. I see a lot of people who kind of overlook Frodo when they talk Lord of the Rings. They love other characters more, but I think Frodo is a great example of what it is like to grow up and know these ideals. So if you think about a Christian household where you know the truth and what Christians believe, and then you are going to spend the rest of your life out in this world that we have. Um, and Frodo does that. He, he knows he has Hobbiton in his mind. 
and he never, you know, gives up his love for or belief in and the way that he treasures Hobbiton. But he now has to go through this whole journey and he's not there and he doesn't get to have it. But he has to still uphold his love for that. And I think that is this really great representation of the Christian life and the struggles of a Christian. And I think the examples that all the characters have of how they stay true to what they believe and what they are fighting for, despite just how hard it gets and how little comfort or congratulations they seem to be getting for that, they they have. So I think that is really, really crucial, especially to Christian readers to read Lord of the Rings and to see that that struggle is going to happen, but it's going to happen because you care about defending what you're defending, regardless of how hard it gets. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking about uh, defending and 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 the the battle, the warrior. Um, the, I think that that transitions us nicely to Beowulf. Yeah. So Beowulf is the second book on this list, and that very much is a huge part of it. I think Beowulf does a brilliant job of demonstrating the idea of men as protectors and warriors and illustrates really well for us what that what that looks like but i also think illustrates very well for us what it looks like to be truly friends with someone else and to truly love someone else and that i think is really brilliantly done beowulf um is honestly not that long but lots of people that i know have never read it even though it's very short um and it just, Beowulf is just great. It really does make you understand a lot of those same things. That that idea that you defend what is right and you defend your people, even when there's no chance of success or when you yourself may perish for it. That isn't an excuse for giving up or giving in. Beowulf just does a great job of that. I think Beowulf also is maybe the best book in English to teach the average reader a huge appreciation for poetry and for the lyrical verse, because it's much easier to get that poeticism as in Beowulf than it is in, say, the Iliad or the Odyssey, because they're translated. And although it's old English, it's easier to kind of bring that in. And so I think it it teaches you an appreciation for things that are beautiful, a love for things that are beautiful, even just in its text, but then it is teaching you what might and valor and good leadership is. Um, And I think that's really good qualities for men to read, but also for women to read and to kind of understand those values, because I think they're really, really well done. Beowulf is not... a Beowulf new to me book. is about might and valor, but it's also just such a beautiful depiction English. of friendship. 
um, and these warriors who fight together and travel together some people and work shy together. away from Beowulf. Either they've just never and heard of it, love and compassion for each other. It's really, really beautiful. They see and very the old English or you know, so kind of updated old English as essentially the same as reading a foreign language, which we know it's not, but it, you know, for someone unaccustomed to that, it, it can, it can be rather intimidating perhaps. Um, what encouragement would you give our listeners if that's where they've been in terms of, well, I'd like to read Beowulf, but old English. Um, I would say number one, find an audiobook. I'm not always a huge advocate of audiobooks. I personally find it hard to pay attention um, for a lot of audiobooks. But realize that you were never really meant to read Beowulf. You were meant to hear it. It was it was very oral tradition. And that does make it much easier. I'm almost positive if you go on YouTube, you will find full recordings of someone reading it. And that makes it much, much easier but honestly, if you're struggling with it and you have the opportunity, read it with younger kids. Read it with kids who are maybe, you know, 8, 10, 12. And I guarantee you it'll be much easier to get into it because little kids just kind of ignore and brush past all the language they don't understand. And they just get the whole context of it and they just don't worry about it. And I think that'll make it much easier and much more enjoyable because the kids are having fun and that makes it easier to just kind of get the gist of it. Um, but also I think that that raises the big, it brings up the big conversation that no book is that easy to read on the first, on the first time. And it's a good thing to reread things and it's good to continue trying and continue working through something because you're, you're not going to get everything the first time. And that's great. It's totally fine. Don't feel like you have to brilliantly understand absolutely every word, every phrase, every context. Be encouraged by the fact that books are meant to be reread because you're meant to have the same conversation over and over again as, as you grow and as you age. Going back to what I said at the beginning, where it can be really boring to talk about all the details of weddings and you just don't care. But then all of a sudden you're planning one and you want to know everything you possibly can about anybody else's. And that's going to be the same for you with every book you read. So we as siblings, like my siblings and I read Beowulf in school when we were younger and we all loved it. We would play um, Playmobil action games with Beowulf because we really enjoyed it. But my brother is now in the Marine Corps. I guarantee you if he read it now, he would read it exceptionally differently because his scenario and his life has changed just a fundamental amount since when he was eight. Um, and that's a good thing. He would probably love it in an exceptionally different way and will get something out of it that he did not get then. Um, a similar thing with the Iliad he found was that when he read it in high school, reading it or even considering and looking back on it now, it means something very different because, of course, now he has that understanding as a soldier and as a warrior. And so I think don't be afraid to get 
20% out of Beowulf when you read it the first time, because then you'll get 10% more the next time and you'll get 30% more the next time. Books often are waiting for the right moment. And so you keep reading the book over and over again. And then there's a time where you get there and you're like, this was, this was when I needed to read this book. And you can just continue to read it until you feel like, oh, I have an understanding of this book that I never have before. And that's why it's good to reread it. I actually would compare that to something that happened a lot in my household that I remember especially noticing in high school and then in college was after church on Sunday mornings, there would be this very often I or my mom or someone else in the family would just go, you know, I've heard this reading every year of my life and I never, never noticed this till now. And I feel ridiculous for not knowing that, but I just like, it just clicked for me right now. And the repetition's good. That's why we repeat the readings. That's why we do this on Sunday mornings so that as you grow, you understand better and you learn better and it just, you receive better insight. You figure it out more. And so I think that's important too, is if you're going to read Beowulf, and you're afraid of the language barrier, don't be, you'll, you'll get there. The only way that you'll learn it is by continuing to read it and not being afraid to not understand and even laughing when you don't understand. I don't know what this is talking about, but it sounds cool. Okay, moving on. Don't, don't worry about it. Yeah, that, that is fantastic. And I, I, I love that suggestion of reading it to young people. And you're absolutely right that they they just they pick up on the plot, you know, in terms of 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 getting it and understanding, you know, I I see that uh when we read to our kids that you know, sometimes, and sometimes there there are books that it's hard to read them out loud especially if you've never read them before. You know, you're reading it for the first time and sometimes you're stumbling over the language or, or whatever the case may be. And and yet, even though it's a struggle for you as the reader, the kids are just like, they're ticking. They're right, they're right there with you, um, even though you think the entire thing is just a flub. Um, and so so I, I think this is, is good encouragement to to just do it you know, to, to j just read and, and don't give up because it's going to be uh, beneficial. Now, our next book is uh, Siddhartha. So uh, take us into, uh, speaking of, of other languages, right? Um, take us into uh, Siddhartha. So Siddhartha is a book by Hermann Hesse. It was written in German, but it reads very much like a non-Western book. Siddhartha is about a monk named Siddhartha, and he, oh, I think he even meets the Buddha in his novel, but he's basically trying to transcend. That's his goal. He is going to transcend. And in his mind, the Buddha himself fails to fully transcend, and he's going to be better than Buddha. And that's really what this novel is about. It's really fascinating because it's when... I remember correctly, I believe this is correct, but I'm not going to <laughs> fully claim that I know. If I remember correctly, this was during a period in Hermann Hesse, who was a German author's life, when he was being first 
kind of exposed and entranced by Eastern religion and was very fascinated by that. And he ended up writing this novel to kind of discuss those themes and that idea, this idea of the Zen and of finding inner peace and inner spirituality and fulfilling your vocation by doing so. So that's really what Siddhartha is about. But I read Siddhartha, I must have been 16 or I just turned 17. And it was just one of those books that stuck with me instantly. And it's a book that I think about frequently to this day, specifically because I am Christian. Because it is talking all about a religion that is exceptionally different than ours. And the, the reaction that I had to the book, I guess the conversation that I had as a reader with the novel while I read it, has really shaped the way that I think about things ever since. Because it is a book, ultimately, that of course is him moving further and further in this Eastern religion and therefore further and further from the truth. And and that's what you're reading through. And it it did such a good job to me of reminding me that my sense of self is not that important. And there's this temptation, especially with Eastern religion. We see this in the Eastern religions and in this book, as a monk, he's looking for a way to transcend and he himself be perfect. And that's his goal um, through meditation, through good works, through um, prayer, through seclusion, all of these things. And uh, through the rejection of things that taint or um, taint or even like wreck your soul. That's kind of the conversation that he's having. Um, and the, the ultimate thing that he rejects, and I'm not going to spoil it because again, mind blowing when I got to the, the end of this novel, the ultimate thing that he rejects is basically the most fundamental aspect or one of the most fundamental aspects of Christianity. Like you can't have Christianity without the thing that he rejects. And reading through that and realizing just how terribly he has missed the ball and like missed the point is so eye-opening as a Christian because a lot of these Eastern ideas and non-Christian ideas are very prevalent in our current society. This idea of um, finding your true self and your inner self and meditation and all of these things, those do not sound off off the cuff that bad. But if you take them really extreme and you dedicate your whole life to that and you make that your vocation, as you see happening in Siddhartha, it becomes just blatantly obvious how dangerous they are and how quickly they reject and destroy your faith. And I think it's brilliant. And I don't think it's a depressing novel. I don't think it will drag you down. But I think it, it does a great job of that. It makes you rethink. This is such a good book to remind you of the danger of those things and of making those things your life and your pursuit 
and your goal. And I don't think it's a book that reads in a depressing way. I don't think you read it and you just feel horrible, but it's, it's a book that you read and are reminded as a Christian of what the danger of this is, um, especially through his kind of conclusion. So he, Siddhartha reaches what he thinks is, you know, the ultimate. And the way that he reaches that is very anti-Christian. The way that he, what he has to do basically in order to do that is completely rejecting everything that you need for Christianity. And it's a good reminder of that to Christian readers to remind us that although it's not wrong to think of yourself and, you know, to have these philosophical questions of self and purpose and identity and even meditation, these things don't seem that dangerous to us right off the bat. I mean, they're normal in society. They can be very dangerous. And this book takes them through that Eastern religion, through life to what their natural conclusion is. And it's really brilliantly done. It's actually a very short novel. It's very engaging, but you do read it as a Christian and go, oh yeah, this is not, you, you can't do this. This isn't the way to live. This isn't the right decision to make. And it makes you rethink your own decisions in life when it, when it comes to those contexts and those things. And it makes you more careful. I think, I really do think it makes you guard yourself more against the temptations of that sort of a lifestyle, because then you realize that living that lifestyle and going down that path ultimately rejects Christianity. Yeah. And, and when you were talking about that, this, this emphasis on, on self and, you know, becoming your best self or whatever the case may be, um, you know, uh, right now I'm, I'm teaching psychology and we're studying Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, uh, you know, the, the top level, um, the ultimate is, self-actualization. And so having this whole idea of, you know, you, your, your ultimate, uh, your ultimate existence is to actually get out of yourself. Right. Um, and so just having this, um, this, this misunderstanding of, of who man is and, and why God, made man to live in community, right? You know, that, that all of these very fundamental things, uh, really start to, you know, Siddhartha questions all of them. Yep, absolutely. And I, that really is the whole point of the purpose of the novel. And yeah, I really, I just think it fundamentally puts it in really simple, really layman's terms. It's super easy to understand when you read this book. And that's, I think, what I really appreciated is that there's so many years of philosophy and history and intellectual debate about this. And this is a huge part of what our current time period is wrestling with. And Siddhartha just slips in there with like a 150 page book that just just like, by the way, here's the whole summary of it. There you go. Um, and it's interesting and entertaining in joy. And so that's why I think it's really important is that is a discussion that needs to be had. And that this book makes really easy. So speaking of conversations and uh, conversations that should be had, 
Dante's Divine Comedy is the next book on our list. Yes. So Dante's Divine Comedy is, I, I, I like to joke that I can't make one of these lists without having series count as one book. I just am not capable of it. So this is one of those ones where it's it's three, but it's one in my head. This is just such such a good trilogy for you to read and, you know, kind of think about kind of in the exact opposite of Siddhartha. Siddhartha is like Christianity out the window, nothing. And this is just like the entire plot is this concept of religion and of vocation and of the Christian life. That is really all that it's about. Um, and of course, it is written from a Catholic perspective. We have an entire book dedicated to purgatory. But the, the discussions that it has and the questions that it raises are so important. And I think my disclaimer is that I have not yet finished uh, Purgatory or Paradise, um, but I've read Inferno multiple times and Inferno is brilliant. Um, my sister and perhaps a few other people that I know would argue that the other two are even better. Um, so I have a few years yet before I hit 30, so I have the time to finish them, and they're on my list to read for hopefully this year. But even just speaking with the Inferno, there's a, there's very few things that have ever been as brilliant as someone just being like, what am I going to write about? I'm going to write about myself walking through hell and just describing what I see. Just a brilliant idea and just a really insightful piece of work because you read it and it is putting a new perspective on sin and also just on how you ought to therefore live your life on earth this idea of living with a purpose and living with a conscience because these people that we might think of as perfectly adequate or perfectly normal human beings in our everyday lives can still go to hell and they can still have these issues and it, it really makes you reflect differently on the way that you live um and and it reflects very differently on the way that you view other people um and that's something that when I read The Inferno the first time, I got walked through it with a teacher, and he had done a lot of you know work with The Inferno. He knew a lot of the references and the allusions of the text, which I think is really helpful with this novel because so many of these names that we don't recognize are people alive in Dante's time. It's this radical and hilarious thing that he places people from his real life and his real community into circles of hell, and I'm sure into purgatory and into paradise, that you, of course, are not going to know unless you've, you've been told the research or you have footnotes that tell you, by the way, this is like just someone that was in his life. But it, it reminds you to look at your peers um, and the people that you look up to very differently. Um, your peers and your predecessors just are in a different light after you read that book because you're realizing that we like to apologize and write off the problems that our role models have, um, especially when we're talking celebrity role models or anything of that sort. And this book kind of reminds you that that's not a good idea because you don't want to end up where they are. Um, and 
that's what I think is really brilliant. Again, it also brings in the poetry aspect, which is phenomenal and very interesting. But I really think it makes you think a lot about your vocation and about living your life intentionally because you know we you have to be careful with things like this because of course we don't we don't have this whole idea of works righteousness but i think there's this really healthy aspect of reading the inferno and reading the divine comedy where it reminds you that you should be conscious of the decisions that you're making and that you should be living your life with um post-death in mind. You should not be living your life just because I'm on earth and I'm going to do what I'd like to and my decisions don't have that big of consequences. You should you should be thinking about the fact that your decisions, even your small decisions, do have consequences and that what happens after death is more important than what happens on earth. Um, and, and I do think that this book does a good job of that. Of course, you don't want to take it too far. And then, of course, try and lead, lead a legalistic life. But this novel does a great job of talking you through that idea and reminding you that those actions have consequences and that you ought to live your life with purpose and intention and with an intact and healthy conscience. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes thinking about life after this life helps us gain perspective on this life. And there's so much, I mean, we could do an entire uh, episode and probably at some point we will uh, do an entire episode on Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. Um, but that that threefold nature of the Divine Comedy um, leads us really nicely to the hammer of God, actually, uh, because yes. you have that threefold um, aspect of things. And we're looking at life here and exactly what you were talking about, you know, that the Divine Comedy helps you ponder the decisions you're making now um, from the perspective of, you know, after death. Um, and the Hammer of God really... Uh, forces you to examine things now as you're thinking about life now. Absolutely. Um, the Hammer of God is such a brilliant book. I think it's such an, well, an overlooked book, but I think very few people other than Lutherans probably read it, but it's just brilliant. Um, and it, and it covers something, yeah, like exactly that from, the divine comedy with the kind of swap up of that. The hammer of God is just everyday in fiction. It, it switches into that form of literature that it, you're not, you know, literally walking through hell with Virgil guiding you. Um, it's just these pastors doing their job. Like that's what you're reading about. And there's not these hugely dramatic literary things that happen. You're watching them, go through their every day. And yes, they're, they're coming to a new understanding and a new conclusion there. They are changing, but their lives itself are not that brilliant or out of the ordinary in any way. Um, 
And that I think is really important. I think novels of that regard are really important. Um, that's one of the things that's brilliant about Hannah Coulter, which was on the girls list. Um, there are a lot of novels that are more just everyday life in fiction. And you learn a lot from that. You learn a lot from, again, seeing people in similar, similar scenarios to you. When you're struggling with something, you want to talk to somebody who's struggling with the same thing. And we see this a lot in The Hammer of God. I know multiple people who try to read The Hammer of God every year during Lent. Um, brilliance works really well. Um, but a really, really important thing that I think you get out of The Hammer of God is the struggle of faith um, and understanding, like faith versus your intelligence um, and the idea of intellect versus submission. So this idea of I am an intelligent person. I think about things deeply. I ask questions. I ponder things. But in the case of religion, I have to be submissive. And my intellect, my intelligence and understanding doesn't get to fight with and it doesn't get to dominate my faith and my understanding. I have to be fully submissive in that regard. And that is a struggle. And I think that's a struggle that a lot of Christians are going to have because they do think about things deeply, deeply, and they do have these deep questions and these struggles that they are thinking through. And I think the hammer of God is such a great way of depicting how that is a very real struggle, but also this idea that you do ultimately not have to understand. And it doesn't matter if you understand you have to accept and believe the teachings of the Bible. And I think it's just brilliantly done. And I think that that's helpful, even if you don't have the exact theological struggles that the pastors that we see in Hammer of God have. It helps you with your own. It really, I think, does. And the idea of the common and the ordinary, Lutherans uh, know and embrace the common and the ordinary, perhaps better than anyone else. Um, you know, Luther really uh, brought this forward uh, for us, but it's it's something that is certainly biblical, right? I mean, when Jesus was teaching, he used the common and the ordinary to teach. Now, this isn't to say that the fantastical can't also teach, but as you said, we shouldn't overlook the ordinary and the lessons that the ordinary can teach us. And I think that that perhaps brings us really nicely to the final book on uh, our, our, the first half of our 12, uh, Moby Dick. Sure. And actually, one more comment I'll make about that and what you just said is that Lutherans are perhaps the most Hobbit-like of the people in our our world. Um, we have this care and love for growing things and family and just, you know, these just very pure, beautiful things that the whole rest of Middle Earth is like, okay, we're going to protect them because this is very pure. And they just, you know, they have the right, they have the right idea. And we're very much Hobbits in a world that does not embrace Hobbits. Is, is kind of a way also to look at that, which I think is really interesting. But yes, Moby Dick might be one of the more controversial books that I put on this list, purely because people feel very strongly about this novel. Um, I know many, many people who think you should never even try to read it and that it isn't worth the struggle of reading this massive novel. Um, 
But I, I think it is one of the most important books that you can read when you're learning to have a conversation with yourself and you're learning to think about things deeply and have those conversations. Um, and I'm actually going to read perhaps one of my favorite quotes in all of literature um, from Moby Dick. It's on either the first or the second page of the novel, um, very much the introduction to the book. Um, but this is one of my favorite quotes. I honestly think it is the first page. I think it's like the third paragraph. Um, and the quote is, whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. I love that quote. I think it's just phenomenal. And it, I think it's, it's a quote that kind of puts every person who struggles with reading Moby Dick in their place instantly, where it says, yeah, you can give up and be dramatic about it and just completely give up with the things that you struggle with. Or you can just say, this is a mundane, this is just a struggle I'm going to deal with, and I'm going to fight it. And that's really what you learn by reading Moby Dick. And I've talked about this before. I've written articles about this. I think Moby Dick, by reading it, the act of reading Moby Dick, teaches you the characteristics that the characters are portraying, that, that you're learning from the novel. So even just in that quote, we see a sacrifice of self. When he is just depressed and miserable and feels like his life is pointless and you know is dragging his feet, rather than giving up, he puts himself to work. He literally just goes and signs up and now he's just doing work for somebody else and he's not making his own decisions. When you're on a ship, you're not making your own decisions. You're doing what the captain says. Um, and we see that in this novel. He is doing anything Ahab wants. He's, he has to just be a member of the crew. But that's what, even just in that first quote, it's implied that's what gives him a meaning to life again. When he, it, it brings him out of this damp November in his soul. It brings him out of that through a sacrifice of self and therefore a serving of others. Um, it gives you this ability to grow and to discipline yourself because you're putting yourself through something that's not going to be fun. It's not fun to just mundanely work and apply yourself and just constantly do things for other people. It's not like anybody enjoys that. We're all sinful. But this book is all about that. Um, and again, it's something that you learn just from reading the book. And I'm about halfway through Moby Dick at this point. Um, it's been like a year and a half since I started reading it. It's a huge book. It's it's a dense book. It takes a long time. But I keep coming back to it because I admire those, those traits, those qualities. I want to be so self-sacrificial that I could just go sign up and do that on a ship and just put my life into other people's hands to work for them. Um, and I want to be self-disciplined enough that I can read that novel, even though I'm 
am really not that self-disciplined at the moment, seeing as it's taken me over a year and a half and I'm only halfway through, but I want to be that disciplined. So I keep picking it back up because my head just, I keep repeating, wouldn't it be great if I could finish Moby Dick? Wouldn't it be great if I had the wherewithal myself to, to do that? And the other thing that I love so much about this novel is just the amount of passion and love you get from the author. And that takes patience on the reader. I don't think there is another human being alive, perhaps ever in all of history, who cared enough about whales the way that Melville does. He, I mean, compiles pretty much every quote that had been written until his time that he could get his hands on and every fact that had been written until up until his current day about whales, and they're all in this novel. Just every single fact you could possibly want. And there's an index before you even begin the novel, you have to read the introduction that he writes, and it's just the list of all the quotes. Um, I don't care about whales. I really don't that much. They're cool. I would love to see one, but I don't really need to read about it. But the whole point is that you're sitting and you're, again, having a conversation with someone who is a brilliant writer, um, and this is what he cares about. He loves whales and he thinks they're so interesting and that they're so um, instructive, like that you can learn enough about it that he wrote, what, a 600 page novel about it. Um, and so I think that that's really important is that it teaches you if you can love and appreciate and find it endearing how much Melville loves whales, you will find it much easier to sacrifice your own interests in conversation with anyone else about what they're talking about because they won't talk for 600 pages. You can sit through somebody else's interests that you're not interested in. You learn this self-sacrifice for the, for the um, love of others in a way that this novel teaches you that I don't think anything else can. And again, so many people that I know say, Moby Dick is the one book I understand if you give up and that you never read. And the whole point of the book is that you can't give up. You have to suffer through it. And that, that idea that we can just reject or ignore this novel also puts aside how brilliant of an author he is. He's just so good. Like that quote that I read, I, that pops into my head all of the time. When I'm sick of what I'm doing and I just am dragging my feet, I just hear in my head um, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul. And that is now how I, how I describe feeling bored with or, or uninterested in my life. He, he really does have all these great lines, and I've underlined so many of them throughout the novel, that are so relatable, even though none of us are hunting whales and none of us are you know dealing with the craziness that is his life while he's on this journey. And I think that's really important is that you have this brilliant writer who wrote a novel that forces you to learn to be self-disciplined and to sacrifice yourself and to learn to actually truly listen to and find interest in the things that other people care about. Yeah, absolutely. And again, uh, as with all of these books, we could certainly do an episode unto itself on Moby Dick and everything that it entails. Um, we certainly commend all of these books to our listeners and you're not going to have time to get them all in before our next episode. Uh, but next episode, we will be 
discussing the second half of our 12 books that everyone should read before they are 30. Miss Ellie Mummy teaches tragedy and the art and history of composition for Wittenberg Academy. Ellie, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. I, I look forward to the next episode. And I, I will also say, if you don't read these by the time you're 30, reading them before you're 60 or before you're 90 works as well. Um, I just think these are books that if you're looking for something to read, putting them on your list before you turn 30 is a good, it's a good struggle to have. And you will be far the better if you can get them done at any point in your life. But if you want to undertake them before you're 30, I will be very impressed with you. And I think you will have a lot of tools in your tool belt that will really help you going through life. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.